Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and this conversation, which is part of the Ideas for Our Times series, which has been generously sponsored by the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I'm Lee Randall, and I'm speaking today with Rutger Bregman about his latest book, Humankind. It was translated for the, from the Dutch by Elizabeth Manton and Erica Moore. And if you're looking on the BSL feed, our interpreter today is Joe Ross. Rutger is a popular historian who's published four books, including the international bestseller, Utopia for Realists. He's widely recognized as one of Europe's most prominent young thinkers. And his work for the online journal, The Correspondent, has seen him nominated twice for the European Press Prize. In Humankind, Rutger takes aim at the idea that humanity is selfish but, and says instead, this is a book about a radical idea that deep down, people are pretty decent. Now, the last time he visited this festival, Rutger said that real change starts with new ideas and humankind is full of them and we'll be talking about them. But he also puts old ideas under the microscope and points out that a lot of widely believed, believed truths are anything but. His message is that we are inherently friendly and peaceful species, hardwired for cooperation and trust. Now, that might feel counterintuitive given the current state of the world, but he argues it's exactly because of what's happening that this message needs to be heard. So welcome, Rutger. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you today. Thanks. Great to be with you. I need to ask you, were you oh, did you always believe in humanity's innate kindness, or is this something that you've come to believe? Yeah, really the latter. So in many ways, writing this book has been a reckoning with my own ideas. I used to have a much more cynical view of humanity. Um, in the book, I talk about many scientific experiments and stories that have become really famous because they somehow seem to prove a more cynical view of who we are, like Lord of the Flies, for example, the famous novel, or the Stanford prison experiment, the really famous experiment that happened in the 70s when you know, these students were turned into uh, guards and started to behave in a very nasty, horrible way. And I used to believe in all of those things, you know? I read Lord of the Flies when I was 16, and I thought, hmm, this is depressing, but it's probably realistic as well. Um, so yeah, this, 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 this book has really been a journey for me. Um, but what's, something must have sparked that off. Hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, every sort of book after your first book starts with the previous one, right? <laughs> okay, you always, yeah. There's always something uncomfortable about the last book you've written. There's something like some questions that you still have, something that doesn't quite work. So that's always how it happens for me. Um, so the problem, I think, with Utopia for Realists, my previous book uh, that I had the pleasure of uh, you know, talking about uh, in Edinburgh, what was it, two or three years ago? Um, it, was, it was a book about how crazy radical ideas can become reality. And one of those seemingly crazy ideas was universal basic income, which, which has become a lot more mainstream, I think, since then. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of giving everyone a monthly grant that is enough to pay for your basic needs, like food, shelter, education, and so that we could just basically eradicate poverty by giving people money. Now, in Utopia for Realists, I, I argued for UBI with 
you know, a lot of scientific evidence. This is so, hey, here's an experiment that was done in the 70s. Here's another really exciting experiment that was done in the 90s. And, you know, if we just look at all this evidence, it really seems to work. It's really a hopeful idea. Let's experiment more. But then when I went on a book tour, and this happened again and again, uh, I talked to readers about it. And, of course, like for 30 or 40 minutes, you, you talk about all the, all the interesting scientific evidence. But always these conversations would end in big discussions about human nature. What are people actually like? And so the main objection that many readers had was, okay, maybe this will work on a local scale. Maybe this works in a, I don't know, a crazy Scandinavian country, maybe, maybe there. But in most places, it, you can't scale something like universal basic income up because human nature, because people are just selfish, because people are just lazy. This mm -hmm. is not going to work. And um, I think that is really what you see in so many discussions around hopeful new ideas, whether it's UBI or a Green New Deal or participatory democracy. The main objections that people on the conservative side have against it is human nature. You know, it sounds nice in theory, but it's not going to work because people are just not like that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's when I realized that I needed to dig a little bit deeper and write a book about who we really are as a species. We go back even further um, in, into history behind, before these experiments were experiments, mm -hmm. you talk about the fact that much of, much of it boils down to what I call Hobbes versus Rousseau. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can briefly explain what those two opposing ideas are so that we can, we can then bring the conversation on from there. Sure. Well, here we have two of the most famous political philosophers in Western history. On the one hand, you have Thomas Hobbes, who in the 17th century writes a book called uh, The Leviathan. And it's a book about how you can basically establish civilization. Uh, he argued that in the state of nature a long time ago, uh, we were all basically still savages. We were engaged in a war of all against all, and our lives were nasty, brutish, and short. But luckily, at some point, we made the decision, the right decision to give up our liberty and then get freedom, uh, sorry, get security in, in return. So uh, we appointed a, an all-powerful ruler, uh, a Leviathan, who basically yeah, keeps us in check. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the Hobbesian worldview. Now, Rousseau, a century later, pretty much argued the opposite. He said, well, actually, in the state of nature a long time ago, when we were still nomadic and together, is life was pretty good, actually. Back then, we were quite healthy and free and living these wonderful lives. But then we settled down. We invented private property. We got hierarchy. We got these like leviathans, these powerful rulers. And that's when everything went downhill. So that was the biggest mistake we ever made in the history of the world, in the history of our species. We should never have done that. So this is a huge, big and important debate between two philosophers, a, a British philosopher and a Frenchman. And usually Hobbes is being described as, as the realistic guy, you know, as the, the guy basically who had it right. It was a bit less hopeful maybe about who we are, but it was realistic. And then Rousseau is seen as the revolutionary, but also as the romantic, a little bit naive. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, well, you can guess uh, <laughs> who I agree with. Um, but that's, that's the fundamental position. I can, you, you talk about this, uh I'm going to circle back to that, but you also talk about something that I'm not sure if you made this term up or not, homo puppy? 
Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it's the term that I hope to become famous with. It's <laughs> probably not going <laughs> to happen, but uh, yeah. Which, which supposes that, that the reason that we're here and the Neander Neanderthals are not is because we were not, our you know, ancestors yeah. were nicer, were friendlier, were more cooperative. This exact thing that will then run through the entire book. So. Um, what's that all based on? Yeah. Well, one of the biggest questions that historians and archaeologists and anthropologists have asked for decades, I mean, maybe even for centuries, is why us? You know, why did we conquer the globe? Why not the penguins or the Neanderthals or mm -hmm. the bonobos? I mean, what makes human beings so special? Now, for a long time, we'd like to believe that maybe we were chosen by God. Well, that's not an exactly scientific explanation. Then maybe we were or are very smart, you know, compared to other animals. I used to believe that as well. But the problem is that actually, if you do an intelligence test and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a chimpanzee or a bonobo, you know, quite often the toddler loses. So what's actually interesting is that on an individual level, human beings are really not all that smart. Mm -hmm. um, then are we very powerful or strong or mean? Well, not really. That's not, not really the case either. So this is obviously the big question. Then how did we do it? Now, there's a really exciting new theory in evolutionary anthropology and biology that we call this theory of self-domestication. Now, we, I think we all know what domestication is. We, you've got like pigs or cows or goats or whatever. Uh, these animals that for a very long time, we've selected them for tameness and for friendliness. And so you, with domestication, you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua. That's often uh, basically what happens. Now, um, biologists have long known that when you domesticate a species, a lot of things start to happen. You've got a long list of traits that emerge like thinner bones, smaller brains, uh, floppy ears. And most importantly, domesticated spe species just look a little bit more childish, a little bit more puppyish. It's as if they never really grow up anymore. Now, we also used to believe for a very long time that if you domesticate an animal, that it becomes stupid. You know, that actually it's while ancestors were smarter, but domestication is obviously seen as a process of dumbing down. But then the interesting thing is, you look at humans, you look at the list of traits that are associated with domestication, you look at the genes that are associated with domestication and you realize, wait a minute, we are domesticated. We are a domesticated ape. We're a little bit like homo puppy, right? We, we look pretty puppyish compared to our ancestors or compared to the Neanderthals. Now, what's so exciting about this new theory is that actually domesticated species are, are not that stupid at all. Uh, there's now very interesting new evidence that shows that actually when it's about communicative intelligence and social learning, you know, the ability to learn something from someone else, domesticated species are much better than that. And this is, I think, our true superpower as a species. So individually, Homo sapiens or Homo puppy, if we're going to use that term. If is... we're going to get it a term. <laughs> individually, Homo puppy is very unimpressive, right? But we are just so good at copying at plagiarism, basically stealing ideas from other people, is that we can start building cultures and our cultures can come uh, cumulative, right? We can build on each other. So Newton once said that we are, that if he had seen further than others, that it was because he had stood on the shoulder of giants. 
Now, I think that's wrong because we actually are standing on the shoulder of dwarves. That's, that's Homo sapiens. You know, there are just a lot of dwarves, but you pile them on top of each other and then it's going to be a huge pile and then you can see very far. That's basically uh, my theory. But a lot of the, you know, if we, we think about the, the Leviathan, mm -hmm. a lot of the cultures and institutions, you, you talk about the idea that um, negativism rises and rises with the end of nomadic living. Mm -hmm. um, and once we have possessions and once, once we have um, governments, I mean, you say that settling down versus being nomadic, having possessions, triggered something within us and created hostility and xenophobia and was also a really bad turning point for women's equality. Yeah. Um, just to be argumentative, these homo puppies are creating these negative problems. How, yeah. do, how does this all reconcile? Yeah, yeah, and well, this, this is obviously another one of those great questions of history. If it is true that human beings have evolved to be friendly, and I really think there's quite a lot of evidence. I mean, biologists really talk about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, when we were still nomadic hunter-gatherers, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And you have to realize that for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. This thing that we call civilization, you know, with cities and agriculture, blah, 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 it's a very recent phenomenon, only of the last 10,000 years. Now, why did everything change after that? Because that's, that's what the archaeological evidence show. You mm -hmm. suddenly see evidence for wars and for horrible things. And now I think you can argue that we're at a point in history where we're not only the friendliest species in the animal kingdom, but also the cruelest. I mean, we do the most horrible things that no other animal species would even come up with, you know, could even think of. You know, locking up groups of people, exterminating them, ethnic cleansing, genocide, the Holocaust, you name it. So we're clearly also the cruelest species in the animal kingdom. Now, I, uh, this is one of the ironies of writing a book about human kindness and a book with a subtitle, A Hopeful History, is that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about all the dark chapters in human history. So I've got a couple of sort of, I talk about a couple of big mechanisms. One of the, one of the mechanisms that I talk about is the corruptive effects of power. So that is really important to recognize that even though most people are pretty decent, power is a very dangerous drug and it really sort of estranges us from the rest of society. How? How does, um, it, how does it function? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually a lot of psychological research being done right now. One theory is that the experience of power, having just even a little bit of power sort of, um, how do you say that in English? It's sort of, um, does something in the brain. So if you look at brain scans mm -hmm. of powerful people and you look at the regions that are involved with feelings of empathy, well, they don't light up anymore. It's a, it's a little bit, there's one researcher, Dacher Keltner, who's really one of the main authorities here. Um, he says that studying powerful people really reminds him of studying people who have suffered brain damage because they received the blow to the head or something like that. There are just certain parts of the brain that are not working anymore, especially those are so important. And especially the, the things that, you know, distinguish us as a domesticated species, you know, that are about communication and empathy, et cetera. So power is incredibly dangerous. And actually we've known this for a very long time. So nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew this. If you look at how organ, uh, nomadic hunter-gatherer societies are organized, they, 
um, put in a lot of effort to control those and to tame those who are in power. And the main tool they use there uh, is shame. So shame is incredibly important for human societies. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most fascinating things that I discovered while I was researching this book is that we are one of the only species in the whole animal kingdom that have the ability to blush. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I mean, that is, that is so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we just involuntarily give away our feelings to, to other members of our species. And the question is, how, is that a, how could that be an evolutionary advantage? Well, the answer is it helps us to establish trust and you know, make friends. But then you think, hey, when was the last time that I saw Boris Johnson blush <laughs> or Dominic Cummings or you know, Donald Trump or Bolsonaro? Well, they don't blush anymore, obviously. And that something's, you know, they seem as if they've almost lost that ability to feel shame, even though yeah, shame is so incredibly important to build a sane civilized society and to keep everything together. The other evolutionary thing you talk about is, is eyes, isn't it? That our yeah. species, because the whites, literally you can look in the whites of our yeah. eyes. Yeah. Can you describe yeah. what that's about? Yeah, well, that, that was another big eye opener for me. I mean, we are the only uh, primates, you know, uh, and there are about 200 primate species in total. So you've got the chimpanzees and the bonobos and many others. And we are the only ones who have whites around our irises. So <laughs> let me get a bit closer to the camera, right? So you can, people can see me looking at the camera right now. Mm -hmm. and they can track my gaze. Now, again, this is a strange evolutionary phenomenon. Why would we do that? Why would we, again, involuntarily give away our gaze to other people, other members of our species? I mean, that, that doesn't help if you want to steal something, for example, or if you want to rip, rip someone else off, something like that. Mm -hmm. then doesn't really help. Now, uh, the theory that anthropologists and biologists have is what they call the cooperative eye hypothesis, which means that this has helped us to establish trust between one another. If you can look one another in the eyes, it's just easier to, yeah, to trust someone else. And I mean, just imagine what, what romance would be or love or friendship if we couldn't really see what the other people are looking at. If you look at chimpanzees, they're a little bit like poker players wearing shades, right? And why do poker players wear shades? Because they, oh, it's not a very, it's not a game about trusting the other person, right? It's a, it's a very different kind of game. Um, so yeah, this, this um, um, self-domestication, our, 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 our capacity for friendliness, you can really see it in our own bodies nowadays. Uh, you know, the, the blushing and the cooperative eyes, we've really been shaped by evolution to work together. Fascinating. You, you also, you start the book with um, a description of what happened in London during the Blitz. And one of your prime ideas here is that crisis and catastrophe are op great opportunities for change, but also that they're great opportunities for bringing out the best in people. Mm -hmm. And We've all, we've seen that. We've certainly seen that. I, I, at the beginning of lockdown and the pandemic, I saw people rising to the occasion, but now I'm also seeing the anti-maskers in mm -hmm. the US, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was wondering if you could speak to this idea about um, being our best selves during a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And the second part of my question is, have you noticed in your studies, is there any difference 
in how humans behave, whether it's a man-made catastrophe such as a war or a catastrophe such as a flood or a, hmm. the Great Fire of London or hmm. um, not that you were at the Great Fire of London, <laughs> but you know, a natural disaster. Are there differences hmm. in how humanity responds? Oh, this is a great question and there's so much to say about it. So let me start by going back to this Hobbesian worldview once again, or this Hobbesian view of human nature, which says that most people are fundamentally selfish. There's a Dutch primatologist, Frans de Waal, who calls this veneer theory. Yeah. Veneer theory says that civilization is only a thin veneer, a thin layer, and that when we get into a difficult situation, like a crisis, a pandemic, uh, a tsunami, or an earthquake, or something like that, that this civilization is gone, it breaks down, and we humans reveal our true selves. And we start looting, we start plundering, we start <clears throat> raping, we start behaving in all kinds of horrible ways. This is a very old theory within Western culture, and it comes back again and again and again, you know, in different religions. I mean, Christianity has a big love for veneer theory, but you also find it among the Enlightenment uh, philosophers with the founding fathers of the United States. I think it's embedded at the heart of capitalism as well, you know, this notion that people are just selfish. Um, the problem with the theory is that it's, it's really simply wrong. I mean, <laughs> there's just so much evidence that we have that when crisis hits, people become their best selves. That's just what we do, we pull together. So when there's an earthquake, it doesn't really matter where it happens in the world, but people just start cooperating on a massive scale. You see a lot in the news about looting and plundering, but that's mostly rumors who later turn out to be unsubstantiated. Uh, if you watch a Hollywood movie, you know, about a pandemic and about an earthquake, then it's a lot about panic and looting and blah, blah, blah. But if you read the actual sociological research, and we now have more than 700 case studies, it's about people working together. And actually, I mean, you ask about wars, you see the same phenomenon there. So when we look at the Blitz, you know, the moment that the Germans started bombing London and other British cities, um, elites were very worried that the British population wouldn't be able to handle it, that the Germans would break the spirit of the British people. Um, so they, you know, had a whole, uh, considered digging a whole network of underground shelters in London and had all these psychiatric a hospital set up, you know, to deal with all the traumatized survivors. Um, then the bombs started falling and pretty much the opposite happened. You know, the keep calm and carry on spirit. And um, uh, it was explained by elites as, you know, uh, th this was the stiff upper lip. This was the very special British culture. Then they had to decide in 1942 what they were going to do with their own bombers, right? And bombing command basically started bombing the shit out of Germany. And Germany was bombed 10 times as heavily as um, as Britain during the war, uh, because the, the theory was that, well, British culture is very special, obviously, and that's why people were so resilient, but the Germans have a very weak character, you know, they're of a very much lower moral uh, order, something like that, and um, obviously that was false as well. So it turned out it wasn't British culture, it was human nature. Uh, British economists actually found out after the war that the cities that had, you know, uh, basically received the most bombs from the from Bomber Command, uh, actually saw increased production of the factories and the industry, et cetera. So it was completely counterproductive, this whole policy. If they wouldn't have bombed Germany and just focused on, you know, bombing factories and, and infrastructure, et cetera, then probably, you know, the, the war would have ended earlier. It was one of the biggest strategic mistakes in the whole Second World War. So this is really something that comes back again and again and again, that veneer theory 
is simply wrong. And that especially during moments of crises, people pull together. You alluded to reports of, of looting, for example, in the news. One of the things you talk about in the book um, is the idea that the news itself is dangerous, addictive, worse for us than sugar, um, I, I think was the, um, and it just creates this, perpetuates this loop of negativity. Hmm. So what should we replace it with? What kind of journalism would affect change? And what kind of stories are we not getting reported enough? What, should, what can we do instead? Where can we well, go? <laughs> People should binge watch the Edinburgh Book Festival. <laughs> Besides that. <laughs> I think that's that. probably a good place to start. No, I mean, first you have to recognize that there's a difference between the news on the one hand and journalism. Right? Not all journalism is the news. The news is about, you know, sensationalist reporting on incidents and mostly about things that go wrong, the negative stuff, right? If you follow a lot of the news, and we've got a lot of evidence for that, if you follow a lot of the news, if you become addicted to it, then you'll become much more cynical and have a much darker view of human nature. Psychologists call this mean world syndrome. Um, and yeah, it's... Uh, it's not good for you, basically. There's this, indeed this quote from a Swiss novelist who said that what sugar is to the body, news is to the brain. You know? and, and it's the bit, one of the biggest addictions that we have in our countries. You know, about 90% of, of people consume the news on a daily basis and they believe that they learn something from it, that they become educated citizens out of it. Well, I, I would like to disagree there. Um, Good journalism, though, I mean, good constructive journalism helps you to zoom out and focus on the bigger forces that govern our lives, then that can give you hope because actually we have made quite a lot of progress in the last mm -hmm. 30, 40 years. I mean, child mortality has plummeted in the world. Extreme poverty has gone down quite a bit. So that is good news. But there are also other things that are obviously very, very worrying. I mean, if I would have a newspaper, climate change would be on the front page every single day. Mm -hmm. or, or the extinction of the uh, rate of species, right? Um, but often these things are not news because they are structural trends, right? They happen every day instead of something that happens today. So um, yeah, both intellectually and morally and psychologically, I think people should just completely ignore the news, throw their television out the window, and uh, yeah, maybe just start with uh, a book every day or something like that. In fact, we have one available to purchase in the, in the well, festival bookshop, funnily enough. Um, you talk about there being a difference between optimism and hope, and I wonder if you could define, those, define that difference for us today. Yeah. Well, this is something that I've actually learned from Rebecca Solnit, one of my favorite writers, um, and probably other people have said it as well. Um, what the thing is with optimism is that optimism can make you complacent. The optimist says, you know what? Things will turn out to be all right. Look at you know, the decline of uh, child mortality. Look at the decline of extreme poverty. Globalization is working. And you've got all these books, right? The Hans Rosling book, the Steven Pinker books, the Johan Norberg's book. And I like all of these authors, but these books can also make people a little bit complacent because then they can get the impression that you know, these things happen sort of automatically. But that's not the case, you know? Progress is something that you have to fight for really hard and it's not inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why I prefer the word hope. Hope is about the possibility of change. It's about 
the simple notion that things can be different. And that is, that is also the basic lesson of history. It's why I, why I think history is the most subversive of all the social sciences. History shows you that things can be different, that there's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our economy right now. And uh, I mean, there's this saying that it's more difficult to imagine the end of capitalism than to imagine the end of the world. <laughs> uh, but if you, if you really feel that, then study history because history just shows that we can do things quite radically different. But also, I mean, it could also go, you know, in, in completely a, a very bad direction. This is, that's also what history teaches us, is that the people of the 1930s in Germany were not psychologically or morally or, you know, neurologically, they were not fundamentally different from us. You know, were very similar to us. And look where they ended up. So that is also a warning. You, well, you do. You talk about um, this idea that we are somehow hardwired to prefer the people who are like us, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the roots of this negative stuff. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. It's really, I think, the dark side or the other side of the self-domestication thesis. So yes, we've evolved to be friendly, but on the other hand, we have this very groupish instinct. We quickly think in in-group and out-group. So you mentioned the anti-mask wearers, right? Mm -hmm. And for people who are progressive or on the left or liberals, they look at that and they think, oh, that's so selfish. Why don't they just wear a mask? Why don't they just do their best in stopping the virus from spreading further? But I don't think it's selfish. I think it's groupish. That's the reason why they don't wear a mask, because wearing a mask has become a symbol of you know, people on the other side of in the US, you know, the Democrats wear the masks and then the Republicans, well, they, they don't want to look like the Democrats, so they're not going to wear masks, etc. So it's not selfishness. It's more like sort of tribal behavior or groupish behavior. And um, I don't think this is inevitable. Actually, for the biggest part of our history, when we were nomadic and gatherers, I think that this tribal instinct wasn't so problematic because people live in these big social networks and tended to switch a lot of a lot between groups and most of the contact or actually all of the contact that people had was face to face and we've really been shaped by evolution for face to face contact when we can see each other blush when we can look one another in the eye um, but once we settled down once we started living in villages and cities once we started inventing media newspapers you know television you name it we increased the distance between us and so it became easier sort of to stereotype the other person, that other pe people far away. And um, yeah, I think that's basically the story of civilization is a very long story where the names change. So sometimes it's the, the Catholics versus the Protestants or the Greeks versus the Romans or whatever. But the dynamic is fundamentally the same, is that leaders who are often corrupted by power use sort of the groupish mentality of, of the people, et cetera, and lead them on a, on a, on a dark path. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's really what has, in some circumstances, made us one of the most cruel species in the whole animal kingdom. Is that, does that suggest, I'm just, this, isn't, this has just come to me, that, that change should start almost locally where you can look each other in the eye, where you can, um, meet face-to-face -face rather than eventually we'll be able to meet face-to-face -face yeah. <laughs> rather than remotely. Um, yeah. 
Because one of the things you talk about in the book, there, there are situations where, um, where small governmental changes in towns and, and cities rather than entire countries make massive strides and massive beneficial changes. Mm -hmm. So is local the way forward? Yeah. You know, this is why I was quite confused, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, because people were asking me, will this have positive effects or negative? Will this bring people together or not? And then, you know, based on the first chapters of my book, I would say, well, this is a crisis. So people pull together during times of crisis. That would, that's what happens. And indeed, I think that's mostly what we saw in the first weeks. Sure, there were some reports of people hoarding toilet paper, et cetera, and that's really not good. People shouldn't do that. But mostly, I think we saw, you know, a lot of cooperation and altruism, people helping each other, protecting the vulnerable elderly, et cetera. Um, but then the other side of the pandemic is obviously is just the lack of face-to-face -face contact. Now we have things like Zoom, et cetera, and it's better than nothing. Um, but yeah, we are, I mean, we are a very physical creature, right? And it's not only uh, seeing each other or hearing each other, but also touching each other. I mean, our, just the ability to touch. I mean, it's one of the most important uh, uh, capacities that we have. And it's also fascinating to discover that you find out that many of your friendships, I, I don't know if you, you noticed that as well, but one of the big surprises for me in the first few weeks was, hey, my friendships are so physical. <laughs> I'm touching my friends all the time. It's almost like, hmm, that's, that's weird. Um, so yeah, and that obviously doesn't really help in, in bringing people together. It really goes against our nature. Social distancing is so, so unnatural for us. Um, so yeah, now I think the situation has, has really changed from sort of a sudden crisis into an occupation, right? It's mm -hmm. as if we're being occupied by the virus. And then the question is, uh, yeah, how long can we handle that? One of the messages I took from your book was that really the ancient message that if I want a kinder world, I should treat other people the way I would like to be treated. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and you talk a lot about how expectations rule outcomes. And I'd love to get you to speak to that a wee bit before I go to audience questions uh, quite soon. This idea that if we tell somebody they're stupid, well, they'll just be stupid. You know, they won't yeah. feel the need to um, excel. Whereas if we try to boost someone, I mean, it's very, it's like child psychology yeah. practically. But can yeah, you talk yeah, about, yeah. can you talk yeah. about how that works? Well, look, writers have always known that ideas are never merely ideas. Stories are never just stories. It's never just entertainment or something like that. Stories um, can change who we are as a species. They, they, we sort of, we can become our stories. So changing the world often starts with telling a different kind of story. Mm -hmm. um, if we believe that most people are selfish and lazy and nasty, um, then we're gonna create a world that sort of will bring out that behavior. Um, we'll create institutions, schools, democracies, um, even prisons, you know, that will bring out the worst in each and every one of us. Now, once you change that, once you move to a different story, then, you know, you can create a whole new world. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's, that's really one of the main things that I come back to again and again in the book. Uh, maybe it starts with a different story. It's also why I started the book or, you know, one of the first chapters is about Lord of the Flies. 
um, the story of William Golding, which was about, you know, kids behaving in a really horrible way once they end up on an uh, uninhabited island. And millions of kids were forced to read that uh, for decades. And so I discovered after a couple of months of research that there actually has been a real life Lord of the Flies uh, one time in 1965 in Tonga, which is an island group near uh, Australia. And uh, here were six kids shipwrecked on an island as well. And they survived for 15 months uh, by cooperating. And they're still the best of friends today. Now, that's not a scientific experiment, but it is a good story. So uh, if we still force millions of kids to read Lord of the Flies, maybe we should also tell them about the one time that we actually behaved in a very, very different way. Uh, because I think that can, yeah, can change kids' minds and maybe their lives as well and have some influence in the world. Okay, I'm going to ask some audience questions now. We have about 20 minutes left. Um, Jillian is asking, what are your top three messages or actions that we can use to inspire others to also be hopeful? Huh. Top three. I always find these questions the hardest. Well, you do have ten rules. Give a ranking. You have ten yeah. rules to live by at the end of the book. Some of some of those might be pertinent. Yeah, that's true. So, one of my favorite rules for life is uh, because I, I mean, I didn't want to write a self-help book. I don't really believe that radical change starts with individuals, right? It really starts when we come together and build different institutions. Um, but I couldn't resist, basically. Uh, and I wondered, you know, what rules of life for life do you get if you believe in the good of humanity? Now, the first and most important one, and also probably the most difficult one, is when in doubt, assume the best. Now, what I mean by that is that very often we don't really know what other people are meaning, even though we've evolved for communication, etc. We can look one another in the eye and we can see each other blush. Still, communication can be quite hard and tricky. So... Then there's some confusion. Someone sends you a WhatsApp with a strange emoji and you're like, hmm, how should I interpret that? And very often our inclination is to see that in a negative light. This is what psycholo psychologists call the negativity bias. Mm -hmm. We, we too very often focus on the negative. Now, I don't think we should do that. I think when in doubt, we should assume the best. Why? Well, in the first place, because most people are pretty decent. So, I mean, there's just a bigger chance we'll be right. Uh, in the second place, because our positive reaction can cause a uh, so-called non-complementary effect. Now, that sounds very difficult, but it basically means um, that if someone's really nasty against you and you act in, react in a positive and kind way, then it's becoming very hard for the other person to keep on being nasty. So again, the power of expectations and a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the third reason why I should do it is that even in situations where someone is ripping you off or where there's a professional con artist at work, then you still have to accept that. And why do I think you have to do that? Well, it's just um, a price to pay for a whole life living, trusting other people. Because what's the alternative? If you never want to be ripped off, if you never want to be conned, you have to distrust most strangers all the time. And that's just, that's a horrible life to live. So just accept that a couple of times during your lives, you'll be ripped off and do not be ashamed when it happens. Actually, be a little bit proud. And if you've never been called, see a psychiatrist, you know, call a psychologist because there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Now that's one. <laughs> do you want two others as well? well so this, I always give our way question asked for three. <laughs> okay. 
um, to give people hope, right? Um, okay, second very short one is remember your actions are contagious, are contagious, right? There's so much evidence in psychology for that. So if you act in a kind way to someone else, see, look at that and see a whole social network. See it as throwing a stone in the pond and you get all these ripple effects because that person is, is going to be more likely to, do, to be kind to someone else that day. And then that person is also going to be more likely to be kind to someone else that day. So if you are kind to someone, you're going to influence a lot of people that you will never have seen. And I mean, there's really some cool scientific evidence for that, but that's a long story. Okay. And the <laughs> uh, third quick answer, the third part of that answer? Yeah. Don't be afraid when people dismiss you as unrealistic or naive because real change and real progress is often about redefining what it means to be a realist. Mm -hmm. Very often we equate realism with cynicism and realism with pessimism. And if there's one thing I try to do with this book is to say, hey, you can actually believe in the good of humanity and be a realist as well, because actually most of the scientific evidence is pointing in that direction. So yeah, don't be, don't be afraid when people say, oh, you're a cynic or a naive, you know, that's actually a badge of honor. Okay, there's a question. Oh, my eyesight is so bad. From <laughs> somebody who I think their name is pronounced Puya. How about how powerful, dangerous people can persuade non-powerful people to act in a way that is divisive or hateful? How strong is our compass to overcome this? Yes, that's a great question. Um, and again, again, goes back to the point about you know, the dark side of friendliness, because friendliness can morph into followership behavior where we don't really think for ourselves anymore, we, but we just trust those around us and we just follow, right? And we don't sort of critically look at our own actions. And um, yeah, that's actually, I, I told you how every new book starts with the previous one. So if I would write another book, it would be about how, how you can sort of find the hero in yourself. Mm -hmm. how you can not how you can sort of stay critical of your own actions because i really think that even though people have evolved to be friendly and to work together we're not heroes we're not and uh, let me elaborate a little bit on that you know there's there's in the us there's the carnegie hero project you can if you someone has been really heroic you know saved someone or something like that you can sort of say to the project, hey, I've got a case here. And then they, they look at it. And if it's really a heroic thing, then you get, I don't know, $10,000 or something like that. So researchers have interviewed a lot of these people who've done something very heroic. And all these heroes have said, well, it's just what everyone would have done. You know, there was someone who was drowning and I just jumped in the water and I saved the person. And that's, that's why I did it. And that is why I think that these people are not heroes, actually. They're humans. Because... I mean, they all say it's just normal. It felt the right thing to do. I didn't really think about it. So that's not really heroic. The question is, what is really heroic? Well, let's talk about Harry Potter. At the end of Harry Potter, uh, the first book, you've got Neville, right, in English. I read the book in Dutch, but Neville, like the, um, the, guy, the boy who's being bullied a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when Harry and Ron and Hermione have their great plan at the end of the book to save the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he's, he thinks it's not a good idea. He genuinely believes that and he tries to stun them. Doesn't work. Um, and they go on and say the world, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of the book, Dumbledore gives 10 points to Neville. 10 points for Gryffindor to Neville. 
And why? And this is one of the best lines in Harry Potter. He says, it takes a lot of courage to stand up to your enemies, but it takes even more courage to stand up to your friends. Now that's goosebumps, isn't it? I mean, that is, uh, that is like really heroic because it goes against your intuition. It's uncomfortable. It's very difficult. And that is what progress is. Progress is, is difficult. It often starts with people who are willing to go against the status quo and who are willing to even go against their friends and make uncomfortable compromises and, and build big alliances, etc. So that's something that I would like to write about in the future, how to actually go against your own inclination for friendliness mm-hmm. and cooperation and be an actual hero. And I'm not saying I'm one, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm total crapper, <laughs> that kind of behavior. <laughs> uh, Elaine is asking, Lord of the Flies was about boys. Would it have been a different book about girls? There's a lot of chat about women leading countries through the pandemic in a much better way than men. Very good question. Um, I have thoughts, I don't know the answer. It is interesting when you read about human nature and especially read the older books, mostly when authors say human nature, they mean male nature, right? So for example, they say war is in human nature. Well, that's mostly young males who are doing that, right? So it's very strange that when we talk about human nature, we often ignore children, the elderly and, and women. You know, we ignore at around, at around, I don't know, 80% of humanity. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I don't want to sort of paint women in a too positive light. I mean, there is this inclination sometimes to say, and there's been this meme online that says, look at Jacinda Arden, who's, I mean, she's great don't get me wrong, or Angela Merkel, and then to give the impression that be, just because they're female, that they've been this great political leaders. Um, I don't really like that argument, and I also think it uh, sort of trivializes or tries to diminish these, these women as political leaders mm-hmm. because they have very complicated psychologies and histories, etc. and maybe that's the reason why they're good leaders. Um, and there's also a lot of evidence that for example, when we talk about empathy, um, on average, you know, many countries, women tend to score higher on, le- on levels of empathy than men. But is that because of women's nature, of their genes, or is it because of socialization? Is it because we live in a world with power structures where women simply have to know much more about men and men have to know about women because the men are often in charge and, well, this is one thing that people who are uh, not at the top of the ladder have always known is that you actually know much more, you know? So this is interesting about the poor and about women throughout history. They know much more about how the world really works than those at the top. Power tends to make you quite stupid because you don't really, empathy is not necessary, you know, if you're already at the top. And if everybody's always saying yes to you, you don't know how to deal, you don't know how to think around the issue. Yeah. So I'm not saying there are no natural or genetic or, I don't know, biological differences between men and women. My guess is that there probably are quite uh, quite some. But in these debates, I think that often it's a little bit irrelevant to talk about that. I mean, once we have a truly equal world, then we can have that discussion again. But if we don't have that yet, then let's just shut up and focus on getting there. Okay, Johanna's asking the question that really does hang like the sword of Damocles over your book. 
Hmm. How do you explain cruelties like concentration camps or Guantanamo? Mm -hmm. So I've got a long answer to that one. Uh, okay, you have nine, you, you have eight minutes in which to give that long answer. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes to explain the Holocaust. All right. Now, where shall I start? The first, let's start with the psychology of violence. If you watched a lot of Hollywood movies or you know, read a lot of novels or series like Game of Thrones, you might get the impression that human beings find it quite easy to be violent, that we are born to kill, and that once we have a sword or a bayonet, we just easily shove it down someone's body. The reality is actually very different. We have a huge amount of historical and psychological evidence that humans have a strong aversion against violence. We find it really, really hard, especially when uh, people come too close. So most bayonets, for example, throughout history have never been used. Historians have described it, this, that once there are two armies approaching and they realize, hey, this is going to be a bayonet fight. Usually what happens is that one of uh, the armies remembers an urgent appointment elsewhere and just goes, goes away. <laughs> um, so one of the solutions here is to increase the distance. Now, you can do that in two ways. You can increase the physical distance, and that's really the history of technology and warfare, right? You've got artillery, for example. Most casualties in World War I and World War II were caused by either bombs falling from the sky or artillery devices, because it's much easier to push a button and kill a lot of people far away or drop an atomic bomb or something like that. So physical distance plays a really, really important role in human cruelties. The other thing that plays a very important role is psychological distance or what some call dehumanization. Um, what you can do is you can condition soldiers and modern armies do this quite a lot so that shooting becomes a Pavlov reaction. You can brainwash soldiers. Uh, you can also, and this is what happened a lot in the Third Reich, is you can select for psychopathology. So there are a very small part of the population um, has brain damage or doesn't feel feelings of empathy, and often they can become sort of, uh, you know, m m very horrible and sadistic camp guards. Um, so there are all these processes, all these things that you have to do before people can become, can actually commit this violence. Now, that is not, I, I'm not saying this to, to comfort or to say, oh, so don't worry about it. But I think it is important to recognize that we've not evolved to do this. If you send a soldier to a war and the soldier comes back and having killed a lot of people, that soldier is often traumatized, you know, and it, it develops PTSD. And th that's fascinating. I mean, we don't get PTSD from sex or from McDonald's. I mean, food is good for us. We like that. We, and we generally like sex as well. I mean, because, I mean, that makes evolutionary sense. But war often traumatizes people, and it's not—it's—it's it's really not good for us. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but it does suggest to me that, yeah, it's not our—it's not our destiny as a species. You, but you also speak in the book. You talk about that idea of um, people doing bad things because that's what their group is doing. Yeah, I'm—I'm I'm explaining your idea badly, and I'm hoping you'll—you'll <laughs> fix, fix that. But. But also the idea of people doing bad things because they think the ultimate end is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this old saying, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Genocides, for example, are highly, highly moralized. Many Nazis 
really believe they were improving the world and they were, yeah, sort of helping their people and their Germans by um, killing off this, uh, how do you say that, infestation or this, this plague of Jews. So that is, and again, this is not meant to comfort. I mean, that's actually really worrisome because it also makes you question your own beliefs. Because if people can do the most horrible things with good intentions, then you should really look in the mirror and think, hey, are my good intentions, are they actually improving the world or do I just think they are? Um, yeah, we, we really want to have a, we really want to see ourselves as good human beings. There are very few people who, who look in the mirror and say, well, there's an evil person. There's a nasty, selfish person, right? That's not, that's not really um, what we do. Um, so yes, this, this plays a very important role uh, in history that we very often do the most horrible things in the name of friendship, in the name of comradeship, in the name of loyalty to our tribe, to our flag, to our nation, etc. Uh, Samantha's asking, do you think we will see UBI introduced in a post-COVID world? And I think this will mm. be our final question. Okay. I have no idea, but I really hope so. <laughs> it, you know, it's been fascinating to see, absolutely fascinating to see how quickly this idea has moved into the mainstream. When I published my previous book about it in Dutch, that was in 2014, you know, back then it was a completely forgotten idea. And then those people were like, basic income, what is that? Is that like the base salary of a banker on top of which he receives all his bonuses? I mean, what, what is a basic income? And um, now you have, have had this big movement in the US, Andrew Yang, uh, presidential candidate, very successful in, in pushing the idea. We've actually also seen, I think, one of the first polls now that in the US, the, the majority of Americans is in favor of basic income. In Europe, we, that already was the case. So the majority of Europeans, especially young people, are in favor of a universal basic income. So, I mean, the change that we're going to see, that we can see, I mean, I'm a historian, I don't make predictions, but the change that we can see in the next couple of years, it's so fascinating to live today. The new generation, so millennials, that's my generation, and the generation that's even younger, you know, generation, what is it, Z, the most progressive generation, it's the most highly educated generation, it's the most ethnically diverse generation in the history of the world. And look at what's happening. I mean, if you would have told me 10 years ago that by now, a 16-year-old Swedish girl would have kick-started the biggest climate justice movement the world has ever seen, or that we would see the biggest protest in the history of the United States, what is it, 18 to 25 million people participating in the US after the killing of George Floyd? And how many George Floyds have there been before George Floyd? And th but this one made a difference, right? If you would have told me 10 years ago that the Financial Times, the, the, one of the big influential business papers of the world, would write in April of this year that we need to reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years, that we need to think about a basic income, higher taxes on the rich, a more proactive government, a Green New Deal, if you would have told me 10 years ago that a guy named Joe Biden, who's in politics since forever, um, would come up with a platform that's actually the most progressive platform in the history of presidential candidates, that he would be more radical on climate change than Bernie Sanders in 2016. I mean, we're living a very interesting time. We are indeed. It's time for me now to remind everybody that on the website, they can click on the bookstore and they can purchase this fascinating idea full book. 
They can also make a donation to the festival. Normally, at, this is the point where I would, I want to thank everyone who's watching, both now while we're talking and people who are watching in the future. And normally now I ask the audience to give you a round of applause. <laughs> and in the absence of an audience here in the studio where I'm sitting, I'm just going to applaud you myself and say thank you so much for being with us today. It was a joy talking to you. <laughs> thanks for having me. Really enjoyed this. And thanks everyone for watching. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.